0: Today's scripture comes to us today from Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 5. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger." They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would help us to understand your word. We thank you that you give us the word to guide us and to lead us so that we may live a life of wisdom, so that we may live a life of competence and become a person of character. But most importantly, we thank you that your word leads us to the hope that is ours in Jesus, that you lead us to new life, that you lead us to an understanding of how we are desperate without your grace in our lives. And so, God, would you remind us yet again of how impoverished we are unless you become our great treasure. Oh, God, would you make yourself beautiful in our eyes yet again so that we would no longer be captured by the counterfeit things of this world or the ideologies or the people of this world in such a way to where we would be willing to throw away what is so precious for something that is so in, so worthless. And so, God, would you help us to receive everything from today's word today and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So for the past few weeks, we've been looking at the three things in life that are constantly being abused that have caused so much pain, so much suffering in the world because of that abuse. And those three things are sex, money, and power. We said that these three things, the abuse of misuse of these things, have caused so much pain, so much misery in this world. You know, Philip Yancey, who I cited a couple of weeks ago, a very prominent author, a well um Awarded journalist, has traveled extensively all over the world. And one of the things that he says in his books is that no matter where he goes, no matter how different one place is from another place that he goes to, he can never escape the pain and suffering that comes because sex, money, and power is chronically, pervasively being abused. He cannot escape it because everywhere he goes, it's there. Everyone who he's among tends to exhibit these abuses. But here's the thing. Out of these three things that we have been looking at, sex, money, and today, power, the one thing that is the most difficult to really distinguish from the other two is the one that we're talking about today, power. What exactly is it? You know, we think we know what it is, but yet on the the other hand, we don't really know what it is because one of the ways that you should be able to say that you understand something is how you can say it is different from something else. Ah, with that said, I ask you the question, What is the difference between sex and power? What is the difference between money and power? You see, we know the difference between sex and money, money and sex. Yeah, those are two obvious different things that we can distinguish. But what is the difference between sex and power, money and power? Because in our culture today, sex and money tends to be the vehicle that power rides upon to where it's so hard to say know this is what makes sex sex and this is what makes power power in some ways we conflate the two we say sex is power money is power but is that really so why would we even bother to say that power in and of itself is its own thing what is the nature of power it's really hard to distinguish now of course this doesn't mean that there haven't been attempts in trying to figure out the difference between sex and power money and power for example one very uh, well-known prominent tv show that's on uh, line right now that everyone is watching is House of Cards on Netflix. Right? Anyone see House of Cards? No? Good. <laughs> no, I'm sure all of you watch it, right? But in the first season of that show, the main character of that, of that show, Frank Underwood, who plays a congressman, He tries to explain to us the difference between power and money in this instance. Take a listen to what he says in this quote. He says, money is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart after 10 years. Power is the old stone building that stands for centuries. I cannot respect someone who does not see the difference. Now you're like, whoa, that's deep, and I guess I understand what he's saying, but in the end... It doesn't really help us understand what power is in and of itself. What exactly is this thing known as power? Well, hopefully today, after today's message, not only will you come to understand what power is, but hopefully even more so, you'll be able to avoid the abuses of power so that you don't contribute to the destruction that's already out there and constantly out there because people of power are always abusing it. So, with that said, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that Jesus teaches us about the nature of power and how to avoid it with three things to consider. Number one, the pervasive abuse of power. Number two, the purpose of power. And finally, the reason for power. The pervasive abuse of power, the purpose of power, and finally, the reason for power. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the pervasive abuse of power. Do you recognize this quote I'm about to say? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You guys heard that phrase before, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That statement was coined by a man named Lord John Acton. Lord John Acton. And no, he's not claiming to be Jesus. He is a British politician, hence the title in front of his name, Lord. And what he meant... By this statement is simply this. When a person has vast amounts of power, unlimited power, crazy amounts of power, it will always inevitably lead to the abuse of that very power. Whenever a person has tremendous amounts of power, it will always, always lead to the inevitable abuse of that power to where that person becomes a corrupt person. Now, I'm sure all of us in here will probably agree with Lord Acton's statement. Yes, of course, unlimited amounts of power, vast amounts of power will always lead you to become a totally corrupt person. But Jesus, as we study this passage, would actually correct us. And he says, that's not necessarily true. What do I mean? Well, consider our passage for today. Just by looking at a casual reading of it, we can easily see that Jesus is criticizing someone, Right? Who is he criticizing? He's criticizing the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And what is he criticizing them for? He says, for abusing their power. Okay, notice how Jesus describes these people in verse 2. What does he say about them? They sit at Moses' seat. Can we have our passage? Yeah. They sit at Moses' seat. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the stories of the Bible, Moses was a very prominent leader in Israel's history, which is why his name really evokes this idea of a powerful person. So when Jesus says that the scribes and the Pharisees sit at Moses' seat, what they're basically saying is that these people are the equivalent of saying that a person sits on Abraham Lincoln's seat or George Washington's seat. It was a euphemism for a position of power. Power. And here's the question: How do these powerful people use the very power that they had, symbolized by them sitting on Moses' seat? Jesus says in verse 4, read it again with me. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In other words, these scribes and their Pharisees and these Pharisees, excuse me, use their power to make other people's lives much harder. Why? So it can make their lives much easier. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a classic description of someone who is abusing their power. Am I right? Of course it does. Now, with that stage set, we come to the question, who exactly were these scribes and Pharisees? Who exactly are these people? I know for those of us who grew up going to church, we hear these titles all the time. We hear these characters all the time in Sunday school. But who exactly were they? Well, If you just considered the way Jesus is talking about them, you probably would imagine that these must be the most powerful people in Jesus' day, right? These must be the elite 1% of society, the ones who sit high and mighty in the ivory tower, so divorced from the common struggles of life, right? And indeed, for those of us who grew up Going to church—that was the impression that we got. That the Sadducees, the Pharisees—these were the people of the highest power, the highest caliber of elitism in all of Israelite society. Right? That's what we think. But what if I told you that that understanding is absolutely wrong? Two quotes I'm going to read to you right now. Both. Explaining how Pharisees really were back in Jesus' day. The first quote comes from New Testament scholar Craig Keener when he writes this. Pharisees were less powerful than many modern scholars have supposed. Interesting. And now the next one is from Dr. Warren Wiersbe, another biblical scholar. And this is what he says about Pharisees. There were about 6,000 Pharisees in that day, in Jesus' day, with many more who were followers but not full members of that group. Most of the Pharisees were middle-class businessmen, interesting. It turns out these Pharisees who we just assume were the most powerful people in all of society were in fact no different from you and me. Given that most of us in here fall into the middle class bracket, most of these Pharisees, in fact all of them, were really no different socioeconomically than you or I. Now, some of you might think, well, wait a minute, Pastor I remember taking in my New Testament course that the Sadducees, they were powerful people. They came from money, right? In fact, in some instances, you couldn't be a scribe unless you came from money or you came from a prominent family. Yes, you're right. The scribes, on the other hand, they did come from money. They were wealthy people. They came from very prestigious pedigrees. But don't let that get you too carried away. Because consider the big picture during this time. Was Israel an independent nation? Were they people who had their own sovereign right to exist? No. During this time, they were conquered. In fact, they've been conquered for almost 500 years. Israel during this time has been conquered by multiple empires. First they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire. Then they were conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And now during this time they were conquered by the Roman Empire. You see, whatever power that certain brackets of Israelite society may have had, like the Sadducees... In the big picture, it wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't that impressive. It wasn't that significant, okay? And yet it was these very people who have these insignificant amounts of power, this relatively little power from the big picture standpoint that Jesus was criticizing, that Jesus was condemning, okay? So what does this tell us? It tells us simply this. You don't need absolute power to be corrupt, absolutely. You know what you need? You just need relative amounts of power, little amounts of power to become totally corrupt. You don't need vast amounts of power of a, of a, of a dictator or, a, or of a powerful potentate to be totally corrupt. All you need is just a little amount of power and you'll let it get to your head to where you think you are the king of the universe. Listen again to what Jesus says starting in verse 8. He says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. This is so interesting. Jesus lists a bunch of people with varying amounts of power. He starts off with the rabbi who has relative high amounts of power in Israelite society. He says, rabbis, don't abuse your power. Then he goes to fathers who, compared to a rabbi, not as powerful. And yet he tells fathers, fathers... Don't abuse your power with your children. And then he goes down to instructors, which back in that day meant you were basically a kindergarten teacher. You were a tutor to young kids. Most tutors back in this days were in their teenagers' years. Tutors were young, like adolescent people. Right? And even telling these youngsters, you people, don't abuse your power. The point Jesus is making is clear. It doesn't matter how much power you have, a lot of power, medium amounts of power, or little power. It all goes in the same direction, the same tendency, which is absolute corruption, absolute abuse of that power. And that means practically, folks, every single one of you, yes, every single one of you in here... Have it in you, and you will abuse whatever little amounts of power that you have. And guess what? Not only you, but one day when you guys get married and have kids, even your little kids will think they have vast amounts of power. You know, I have four children. My oldest is a seven-year-old named Kara, my beautiful daughter. And you know what I hear her saying sometimes to my son, who's younger than her, and then to her youngest sister? She goes, Judah, Leah, I'm the boss. Do as I say. Right? Right? She always makes sure that mommy and dad can't hear. She's like, I'm the boss. I'm the noon. I'm the only. Do as I say, right? It's little amounts of power, little amounts of authority. And she thinks she's like Kim Jong un or something, right? She's like, I have the power. Or for those of you who grew up back in the 80s or 90s in New York City and the whole culture of the generation of Korean Americans, you ever see a junior hire tell an elementary, hey, better call me young, I'm going to beat you up, right, or girl, you better call me new or I'm going to, like, make sure you really get it, right? Power, even if it's so insignificant, even if it's not that big of a deal, is more than enough to totally corrupt us, totally make us an abuser of that power, okay? Why? Because the abuse of power is so pervasive. The abuse of power is so Pervasive. Now, as you're hearing this, you might be thinking, wow, Pastor John, if that's true, I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to contribute to the destruction and pain and misery that comes from the abuse of power. So maybe what I should do is not seek any power at all. Maybe I should just kind of keep to myself, don't get that promotion so I can have a title. Let's not have status. Let's not get involved in any ranking system. Let me not put myself in any spectrum of gradations where I become superior. I will just be a powerless person, and I will make the world better because of it. If that's what you're thinking, I'm sorry to tell you, that's not going to work. That's not a real solution. Why? Because it's impossible. It's impossible. And when I say impossible, I mean just as it's impossible for your lungs to not pursue the breath of air, so also is it impossible for the human heart to not pursue power. Why? Why? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point, the purpose of power. Now, it's because of this constant tendency of power bringing out the worst in us that we sometimes come to the conclusion that the problem is power itself. In other words, many people, including many Christians, think that the reason why people of power are so evil is because evil itself, excuse me, power itself is evil. Consider these words from Andy Crouch. This is from his book, Playing God. Listen to what he says about power. He says, When we think about distorted and damaged power, we quickly think of the starkest forms of power's abuse. What comes to mind all too often through painful personal experiences is the strong imposing their will on the weak, resorting deliberately or casually to acts of violence and exploitation. This is power at its worst. And we are tempted to think that power at its worst is what? The true face of power. Power at its worst is the true face of power. What's he saying? He's saying what I just said a moment ago. We tend to think that the reason why power is so bad for us is because power is bad in and of itself. But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite of that conclusion. In the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1... There it records for us God's plan for mankind and his desire for mankind. Starting in verse 28 of chapter 1, we read the following. Then God said, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. You see that word reign in verse 26, in verse 28? You see that word govern in verse 28? Those are words that show that the person that it describes is a person of power, right? Someone who has dominion, someone who exercises control. And what that tells us is that when God created mankind, he created us to exercise power. He created us to have power, to possess power. Which means part of what it means to be a human being is that we possess power which involves the ability to influence, to control circumstances, situations, and yes, even other people. Now some of you are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't like what you just said there, Pastor John, because if I'm correct in terms of where I think you're going with this, you're starting to sound like those crazy right-wing fundamentalist Republican Christians, right? It sounds like you're trying to use the Bible to justify the abuse of power. Is that what you're trying to do? No, I'm not. And to explain what I am trying to say, let me read you another quote from Andy Crouch from his book. He says this, adults have tremendous power over babies. Why then are the vast majority of parents not corrupted by their tremendous power? Because they are overtaken by love. They find themselves viscerally committed to another. I remember looking at my son playing in his room one day in his first year of life and realizing with a jolt that if he were to run out into the street in front of a bus, and the only way to save his life was to throw myself in front of the bus, pushing him out of the way, I would do it in a heartbeat without even thinking. So deep, so instinctual, so total is my love for my son that I would give all my powers so that he might survive and thrive. So would almost every parent, especially in those early days when our children are most dependent on us. Power is for flourishing. This means power is a gift worth asking for, seeking, and should we receive it, stewarding. Love without power is less than what it was meant to be. Love without the capacity to make something of the world, without the ability to respond to and make room for the beloved's flourishing, is frustrated love. What is Andy Crouch saying there? He's telling us that God created us to have power because God created us to love. God created us to have power because he created us to love, specifically to actively love someone. You see, the existence of power assumes the existence of a loved one, a beloved, who is a recipient, a beneficiary of that power that you are putting upon them. That is what Andy Crouch is saying is the purpose of power is, and that is exactly especially right on. The purpose of power is to actively love someone to where they benefit from your power. That is the purpose of power. So that someone is loved by that power. So someone is actively, with power, loved with empowered love. But therein lies the question. Who is the beneficiary? Who is the loved one who benefits from power? Well, if you look at our passage in verses 5 to 7, Jesus tells us who it's not. Listen to what he says there. They, the Pharisees and Sadducees, do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Here's the question. Who are the beneficiaries of these powerful people's power? Who are they loving with their power? Themselves, right? It's me, myself, and I. And given the fact that Jesus is condemning and judging these people, it should tell us that that's not how we should be using power. Power is not for the purpose of loving yourself, benefiting yourself, enjoying yourself. Power is not given to you by God so that you can simply be the sole beneficiary of that power. You are not the love object of your power. So here's the question. Who is? Well, who else is left? Everyone else, right? You guys heard that phrase? There are two kinds of people in this world. Me and everyone else, right? You heard that before? Two kinds of people in this world. There's me and then there's everyone else. If you apply that statement to Jesus' teaching, it should be clear who the other people are to be. It's everyone else. God gives us power not so that we can love ourselves but so that through our power we are actively loving other people and when i say love i don't mean those fuzzy emotional like oh you're my soulmate i get you we click we're best buds you're like brother from another i'm not talking about that emotional connection i'm talking about love that is empowered active love love spoken through action okay which means loving someone with power means that you bless someone in an area of life where they feel cursed That you empower someone who feels disempowered in a certain area of life. Where you bless someone to be more fortunate in an area where they have suffered misfortune. Okay? Whether it's financial power, whether it's educational power, whether it's a status power, you use power to better other people through power, through action. Not simply through nice sentimental words of affection, not through writing little love letters, not through having heart-to-heart contacts with each other, but through active love. Now, for those of you here investigating Christianity, you're probably hearing this and you're thinking, right on, right? I agree with you. That is right. The purpose of power is not so I can love myself, not to benefit myself, but to benefit those around me. That's so true. Here's my question then, Pastor. Why do I need to be a Christian? (laughs) If what you're saying is true and I agree with it, what difference would it make if I believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and if I don't? Because we have the same agreement here. We both agree that the purpose of power is to bless others. Or you probably wouldn't say bless as an ungrateful To benefit others, right? That's a great question. And that leads me to my final point. The reason for power. Read again with me verse 13 to 15 of our passage where Jesus says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now, perhaps because of all this religious spiritual lingo that Jesus embeds in here you probably didn't notice something and that is Jesus in these verses has just shown us what all people of power do constantly right what they're capable of doing and what they constantly do two things the first thing that people of power do is that they always either close doors of opportunities for other people or they open doors of opportunity for other people that's what people of power do you either open opportunities for other people or you close opportunities. So, for example, my son will come to me and say, "Dad, I want a popsicle." Right? He's saying I don't have the power to reach the freezer. You do. Will you open that door of opportunity and hand me a nice, delicious popsicle? And I, having the power, I'm taller than him. I can reach. I'll say no. You know, I just close that door of opportunity. That's what people of power do. You close doors of you open doors of opportunity. In this instance, in our passage, it says that the scribes and Pharisees were shutting the opportunity of people to enter the kingdom of heaven because they're shutting the door of heaven at people's faces, verse 14. Okay. The second thing that Jesus says that people of power are always doing and constantly do is that they're spreading out their influence or they're trying to spread their presence with their power. Listen again to what he says about them in verse 15. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and then he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a tile of hell as yourselves. You know when Jordan was very popular back in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, you could see kids in the third world who's never seen an NBA game wearing a Jordan jersey. His name was plastered everywhere during the time where the phrase be like Mike could be found in every corner of the earth. His presence, his influence, the power of his skill was so pervasive that everyone knew who he was. That's what people of power do. They try to spread their influence. They try to spread their presence. Okay. But specifically how do they do that? Well, Jesus says through a proselyte. What is a proselyte? You know in the ancient world a proselyte simply was another word for a convert someone who became a recent disciple of a master in the ancient world and here's the thing that you have to understand about discipleship in the ancient world when you chose to be a disciple of some teacher which is basically another way of saying you voluntarily choose to come under the authority to come under the power of your master right when you say i am going to be your disciple in the ancient world you know what a disciple basically was they were a clone of their master They thought the way their master thought, they behaved the way their master behaved, they spoke the way their master spoke, they prioritized what the master prioritized, they valued what their master prioritized. In other words, they were just like their master to where when people would see a certain disciple, just by observing them, they could say, ah, he is a disciple of Gamaliel. He is a disciple of Paul, or a Paul. you could just tell because in the ancient world, that's what discipleship entailed. You were basically a clone, but of course, back in those days, they didn't use the word clone, they didn't have that vocabulary. They used another word. You know what word they used? Image bearer, icon. That was the Greek word, right? We get our word icon from it. They were image bearers of their. Master, A disciple was to bear the image of the master. So what does it mean? It means people of power wanted to make people in their image. They wanted to go out and spread their presence, right, through the people under their power to bear their image to where they would think, talk, value, and love the things that they think, value, prioritize, and loved as well. Now, if you've been paying attention during this sermon, if you haven't fallen asleep yet, you're probably thinking to yourself, wait a minute, why did I hear that word before. Why does that word sound so familiar? Image bearer. Didn't you just mention that word? Indeed, I did. When I read Genesis 1, 28 to you, that word came up. Listen again to what it says. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the skies, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created Then it turns out God behaves like a powerful person. He wants to spread his influence and spread his presence over all the earth with people under his power bearing his image who are acting, thinking like him. And why not? Because not only is God powerful, scripture says he is the most powerful of all. Consider these words from David poetically in First Chronicles 29 when he says, starting in verse 10, O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, may you be praised forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion, people are made great, And given strength. Interesting. Interesting. David is saying that God is not only the most powerful of all, but he is the source and the reason why certain people have power or more power than other people. And the purpose of all this power is really for one goal. Power exists so that people would receive it and do what? Worship God. Give praise to God. Give all to God. Oh, God, you're so great. We love you. You're the most marvelous thing in the world. To praise his greatness. Now, perhaps you're a little unsettled by that. Like, ah, that makes me feel uncomfortable. That God uses his power so it could result in him being praised and loved. Sounds a little narcissistic. You know, images of Kim Jong-un standing on his platform while millions of people... Marching and smiling at him and praising his name deep down, cowering in fear over his power. Is that who God is? Is he a cosmic Kim Jong un? Is that what he's trying to do? No, he's not. Far from it. How do I know? Look at what it says in verse 15. Look at what Jesus says happens to a person who becomes a disciple of a person who abuses their power. He says this You make him your disciple twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Wow. Jesus tells us that when a person comes under the power, under the influence, under the authority of a person who's abusing their power, that disciple will turn out more evil, more sinister, more messed up, and more abusive in his power over other people. He becomes of a greater monster. And of course, I keep repeating his name, Kim Jong-un. Haven't we seen that? Haven't, isn't that what people are saying? This guy is more crazy than his dad. This guy is more psycho than his dad. Who would have thought, right? Kim Jong-un, oh yeah, he's, no one's going to be as bad. Oh, his son. Oh, my goodness. Why is it that people who are victimized by the victimizer become a worse victimizer over other victims? In fact, we see this same dynamic in the Bible, too. You know, the Bible paints Solomon... And First and Second Chronicles in a very positive light. But if you actually study Kings, the book of Kings, Solomon is not the great king that we sometimes imagine him to be. Now, no doubt he did great things for Israel, but he's abused his power many times. You know that he slept with more women than any, you think all of that was all consensual, right? This man abused his power. What was the consequences of that? You remember Rehoboam, his son, when he became king? Do you remember what he said to his subjects? The first speech he made as king of Israel, he said this in 1 Kings 12, verse 14. My father Solomon laid a heavy burden on you, but I'm going to make it even harder, heavier. My father beat you with whips, I'm going to beat you with scorpions. What? Like you think Donald Trump was bad. Rehoboam, my father beat you with, I'm going to beat you with scorpions. Jesus is teaching us here that when a person of power abuses their power, it always leads to those who are under that abusive power to come out even more evil, more sinister, to where it creates more havoc in the world. Just because a tyrant dies out doesn't mean his tyranny is over. In fact, it may have multiplied if he had kids. But here's the subtext that Jesus is strongly implying. That doesn't happen to those who come under the power of power. In fact, the Bible teaches us in other places that when you come under the power of God, when you come under the authority of God's power and you choose to be a disciple of God, you don't become more evil because, first of all, God isn't even evil in the first place. So how can you be more evil than a God who isn't evil at all? In fact, you become the opposite. You become like God. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11 says this put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality impurity lust evil desires and greed which is idolatry because of these the wrath of god is coming you used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these anger rage malice slander and filthy language from your lips do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the image excuse me in the knowledge in the image of its creator Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. According to the Apostle Paul, when a person chooses to come under the influence of God's authoritative power, which is what he means when he says being renewed in the image of its creator, there's that word again, you don't end up like a person who abuses their power. In other words, you don't end up like a person who is evil, greedy, slanderous, full of malice, lying. No, instead, you become like the one whose image you bear. You become like God. Here's the question. Why is it that a person who comes under the authority of God's power and a person who comes under the authority of a person who is abusive with their power, why is it that you have two different products, you have two different people? Why is it that one person becomes a child of hell Another person becomes more like God. You know what the answer is? It's the gospel. Gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says the all-powerful God uses his power not to benefit himself, but to benefit everyone else. The gospel tells us that God doesn't use his power to love on himself, to love himself more, but to love other people in spite of himself. The gospel tells us that God is a total opposite of the scribe and the Pharisees, these people who abuse their power. How? Because in verse 14, remember, the scribes and Pharisees, what do they do? They shut the door of heaven in people's faces. Our God uses his power to open the door of heaven in people's faces. Why? Because he allowed himself to have the door of heaven shut in his face. How could God have his face? How could God have his have his face shut from the door of heaven? simple he becomes a man jesus christ and he lives the life of perfect obedience that we all should live but we don't and he suffers the full penalty of all our sins that ultimately led to him dying on the cross as our substitute savior and when he died on the cross do you know what was the most painful thing do you think it was the nails do you think it was the crown do you think it was the whips i think it's when he cried out my god my god Why have you forsaken me? You know what he's saying there? Father, why did you close the door of heaven in my face? Right? That is what Jesus suffered for us so that the door of heaven, which should be sealed off from you, is wide open so that you can come in and you could have what you don't deserve at all. You could have God himself. This is what the gospel teaches us about God. This is what the gospel teaches us about how God uses his power. And when you understand it, and when you believe that and when you embrace that, you become a follower of God. You become a follower of Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, not only do you start thinking the way your master does, not only do you start loving what your master loves, not only do you behave the way your master behaves, you start using your power the way he uses his power for you. And that is the reason, Christian, for the purpose of power. That is the reason why God gave you his power to you. So that as people receive and benefit from your power to them through active love, love of action, they're not just going to see you, they're going to see the one whose image you bear. They're going to see Jesus Christ. That is the reason why we have the purpose of power. For those of you who are investigating Christianity and my non-Christian friends, let me ask you. You may share with us a common understanding of the purpose of power, but do you have a reason for that? We do. We Christians do. What is your justification? How do you answer someone who may not agree with you and say, I don't think that's the purpose of power. I think the purpose of power is to be all about me, to love on me. What can you offer as a reason, as a justification? I'm willing to bet you probably don't have one. But if you are a Christian, you have one that is firm and solid and consistent and very true. The reason why the purpose of power is to benefit others and not self is because that is what the powerful person of all did for us. And we bear his image. And that is why we do what we do. We are justified in doing that. The question is, friend. Are you justified in sharing our beliefs in the purpose of power? Do you have that same reason? I pray that you do. But I want to end my message now by finally addressing you guys, Christians, NCF, brothers and sisters who are visiting from other churches. And as I end this message, I actually want to end it in the form of some questions. So can I encourage you guys, as awkward as it might be, can I invite you just to bow your heads for just a moment? And I would like for you to process and be intentional in thinking through some of the things that I'd like to ask you. Consider for a moment the power that you have. Maybe you think you have no power at all. Maybe you think that there is no power. But I hope that in light of today's message you realize that is not true, that indeed you do. And so with that in mind, here's my question. How have you been using your power? How have you been using your power? Have you been using it like the scribes and the Pharisees or have you been using your power the way God has used this power over you? And furthermore, think of the people who are under the influence of your power. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your your, your employees. Maybe it's a, a student that you're responsible for as a teacher. When you exercise your power over them, who do they see do they see you or do they see jesus do they see you to where you expect them to exalt you and say whoa how great you are or did they see jesus to where they would say how great he is how awesome he is in other words when you exercise your power over people do they see a child of hell or do they see the true son of ultimate son of heaven. I want to invite you now to go before the Lord and respond It's a time of prayer. Please pray together. Think about what we have heard today and as we have processed it, well, God, I pray that it would sink deep into our hearts and that we would recognize that you have entrusted us with power, your power, whether it be the power of a parent, the power of a co-worker, the power of an employer, an employee. God, we pray that we would be faithful stewards of power and that we would be like you, Jesus. Power the way you have exercised it upon us. That it would not be for our benefit, that it would not be for our enjoyment, but ultimately it would be for those who are in desperate need of that power. Father, we pray that we would be a people who would use our power to better those. Our power to lift up the countenance those who are so downcast that we would use our power to enrich those who have been impoverished that we would use our power for the good of those who have been so beaten down by the tragedies and sufferings of life. God, would you help us to be that people? Would you help us to fulfill our charter of being a blessing to this world? be what we were before Jesus, a child of hell, but that we will become like Jesus, the true Son of God. Oh, God, would you help us to truly bring this kind of transformation upon ourselves so that those under the influence of our power would also be encouraged and renewed and find hope in Jesus Christ. Oh, God, would you help us to live that out? Would this journey of being empowered. now going to give God his tithes and our offering.